It's the kind of thing I think people will look back in history and say, that was one of the most defining moments in the history of all global economies. All right, we're here with Chris Olson. Chris Olson, I've got his official bio here, but Chris is a friend. And um, we start off by saying that his first job was on the professional squash circuit, where he quickly learned he was better suited to work with entrepreneurs. I don't know if that's true because I heard you were a hell of a squash player. That is not true. Um, I mean, well, it's true that I was I was better suited not on the squash court. What is not true is that that was my first job. My very first job actually was when it came from squash, but it wasn't playing squash. It was actually stringing rackets for squash players. At the time, I was 16 years old. And uh, my mom, who was... We grew up in a single, uh, single parent household. My mom, my parents were divorced and my mom really raised us. And as soon as we got to the point where I could drive, my mom was like, all right, well, it's time for you to get a job. And I was like, I'm not allowed to work. And, and she was like, why not? And I was like, well, you're not allowed to work until you're like 18. And she's like, you, you can work. And she's like, you just got to get my permission. And I give you permission. And I was like, well, what kind of job am I going to get? She's like, whatever job you can, you got to just help out. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay. And so I went and found a job stringing rackets because it was next to the squash courts, basically. And my coach at the time owned the my squash coach at the time owned the store that was like his primary business he kind of taught squash on the side and that was really that was my very very first job okay so i'm going to read the rest of your bio but i'm coming back to that for a lot of reasons i'll tell you here in a second so it says uh, chris built a career investing in emerging technologies and healthcare companies before founding drive capital a columbus based venture capital firm that believes the midwest is the best place in the world to build great technology companies Founded in 2013, Drive now has over a billion dollars under management and has invested in more than 40 startups, including Root Insurance, Duolingo, Beam Dental, and Olive. You don't know this. I don't think we ever talked about this, but my first job was stringing tennis rackets. Okay, there yeah. you go. And it's funny to think about really because you know I wasn't really thinking so much about what I was doing. I don't really know why it was in me that I felt like I had to work. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents weren't really telling me that I had to work. I think if I remember correctly, it was like just kind of what we did. Like in high school, my friends had jobs in the summertime mm-hmm. and and you just worked. And so there was like some sort of maybe even like peer pressure to to be active and working. And I had plenty of jobs, but uh, I wanted to not have a job. I wanted to have a business. Mm-hmm. And so I bought a tennis racket stringing machine from a kid who had um, strung rackets for Bexley High School and was like sick of doing it. I bought it off of him, put it in my basement, and I was in business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny to think about now because then you don't really think like, well, you know, I'm in business. You know, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. You just like we're doing something that felt like it was fun and enjoyable and and get, potentially give you some extra money. Yeah. Um, so we have that in common. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mine, I wish I could say it was because I wanted to be a entrepreneur in the beginning because that'd be a, be a better story. But, you know, for me, I, I was just singularly minded. Like I, at the time, I like, you know, I wanted independence and like I wanted my own bank account. I wanted my own uh, everything. And I remember when I was even younger, I was 12 years old, we had like I had to go. I went on this this trip to go play with a squash coach over in England, and I came back with British pounds. And I went to the bank to exchange them for U.S. dollars. And the uh, you know I, I remember that so vividly because I went in and like the lady got the exchange rate wrong, and I got in this like 
big fight with like the teller at the bank because I was like, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it backwards. <laughs> I was like, there are supposed to be more dollars than there are pounds. You're doing the calculation backwards. Mm-hmm. And she's like, nope. And I'm asking the manager and the manager was like doing the same thing um, until eventually it like just escalated up. And I was like, it, it, they, it, they did. Eventually I had to get my mom involved. And, and then... <laughs> you were 12? Yeah, about 12. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and you were, you know, catching them. I mean, I, it's like a thing probably most people still don't do. It probably happens all the time. Nobody's actually doing the math. They just take the money and, you know. Right. Well, but it was, this was my money. And so right. what finally got him was I asked him because we didn't have cell phones, right? So I asked him to use the phone because I was like, I got to call my mom. I was 12, right? So I'm like near tears. And I called my mom and I was like, what do I do? And I was like, am I wrong? Like, do I? And she's like, no, you're, you're doing it right. And she was like, you tell them that if that's the rate that they're going to charge for British pounds, that I'm going to put my entire savings account into those British pounds right now and I'll buy them off them um, at that price. And I was like, okay. And I handed the phone back to the lady and I could just see her being like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me just... Okay, hold on a second. And she uh-huh. goes, "Just can you just hold on?" And yeah. then she looks at the math and she calls the manager over again and she's like, "This lady on the phone uh-huh. saying that she'll drain her entire account and put it into <laughs> British pounds. Are you sure we're doing it right?" And they're like, "Oh. Yeah. You know what actually? Yeah. No, we're not doing it yeah, right. No. Like the kids right. It can't be possible." Yeah. And then they were like, "Here you go." And I'm sure that, you know, it's probably like 40 pounds, so that's like mm-hmm whatever, 50 bucks or something. So, but at the time, like that was, that was all the money I had and that was my money. And like, I was very, very protective of it. Not because it was money, but because to me it was like, I was using that money for, that was my freedom. Like Mm -hmm. that enabled me to go off and buy for me was what was important, which was like, I wanted to buy the new squash racket because I was Mm -hmm. really playing a lot of squash and I wanted to get better at it. And I was convinced that like the new racket had the bigger head and a teardrop shape and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I'd been like saving for that. It was like a thing. <clears throat> so like for me, it was like the ability to like control my own destiny. And I convinced myself that if I was successful in squash, then I'd be successful in everything else I wanted to do. That was kind of the, the reason why this teller was like so under my skin where mm-hmm. I was like, you know. It was I'm, in the way of your freedom. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think as I look back on my life, like what has been the motivator for me to do things it's definitely been that that drive to want to be able to to kind of express myself and to be free to do whatever I wanted to do, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's that's been a very very consistent theme for me. Yeah, it's great. You know, we we say at Gravity that it's the community is about expression, well being, and impact, and you know how we express ourselves can be in a variety of ways. It's a critical part, I think, of a basic human need. And maybe in some ways it's undervalued or the kind of concept of expression is reserved for um, the arts or something that, you know, maybe is a little bit more kind of obvious. But, you know, in your case, you know, you express yourself through your work and other ways, you know, squash was one of those ways. Kind of tell me a little bit about kind of going back to this like early childhood part where kind of this, this, you know, feeling of expression is starting to become like a, a thing for you. Yeah, I, I don't think I, I would have described it the way I just did when I was younger because I right. didn't think about it. It wasn't like this. Yeah, in hindsight, thing. you kind of connect these dots. Yeah, totally. But I, I think it's one of those things where there are these these tangential connections between what you're doing and what your actual experience is that makes you kind of open up these you know, these, these moments of perception where you start to better understand the world around you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was talking to my daughter yesterday and 
we were doing this, uh, you know, this the field trip for her class in my office. And she loves doing math and she loves reading. She's not creative. Um, and so, you know, we had decided what we would do is for her class, we were going to start a, um, you know, make-believe company. So we had the whole class there starting the make-believe company. Now we got to be on teams. Okay. Well, what team? Uh, we've got all these five teams. We've got finance, we've got marketing, we've got all these different things. And my daughter is like sitting there, of course, like, oh, oh, hand up, like, put me on the finance team because I know math really well. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, 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 you go on the marketing team. <laughs> and she's like, oh, marketing. She's like, oh, dad, mm-hmm. I'm not creative. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how to draw. And I was like, that's, that's why you should go do it because mm-hmm. I, I think it's a muscle. And if you use it, then you'll get better and better and better at it. Yeah. So we go through the exercise and we get to the end and they had to, she, her team had to develop a logo. And the logo the, and the name of the company that they came up with, and, and it was her idea, was she uh, called it the Impossible Geniuses. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's an amazing name for right. a company, right? Right. And, you know, she had this... Pretty you know, creative. Yeah, super yeah. creative. And to her, you know, creativity was was about drawing. Right. It was about painting. It right. was about uh, the traditional perception of the arts. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the the, com- the culmination and the, and the combination of you know, math and science and all these things and using all these tools to create something that the world has never seen before. Right. And like I saw in her that moment where all of a sudden she was like, oh, totally yeah. get it. Right. And I think about, you know, my past, you know, my child, like what are those moments that I really remember as a kid? And even as an adult, it's when when everything does come together into those moments where you start to really, you, you start to see that you you have the skills to develop something that is innovative that nobody's ever seen before, yeah. and you build it. And it could be so small. I mean, I, I could I could nerd out with you about like right. the time that I built this really cool Excel formula, mm. and I was really excited by it. Um, or it could be bigger things. It could be like I saw this idea for a company that had never been built before and mm-hmm. went off and, and built it. And I think that each of those are, are to me, equivalent. Like, yeah. And some of them have bigger impacts than others. Yeah, I, I've often said, and I really firmly believe that we are all born creative. Mm-hmm. That that is kind of the essence of what we come from. And you know, for me, that's like a, a, a source energy, the divine God, whatever it is that you call it or believe. But I think there's this like, purity, this energy that we come from that is truly creative in nature. But, you know, what's happened is societal programming, parental programming, you know, traumas, whatever else happens in our childhood or along the way, kind of takes us away from that. And we start to attach to definitions and expectations and programming. And one of them is that creativity is limited to a certain kind of thing. When in reality, we're creating all the time. We're creating beliefs. We're creating opinions, judgments, actions. We're constantly creating. We are the creators of our own lives. And there's a million ways in which you can see that manifest. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we were talking about earlier, joking, you know, that our mutual friends grown a big beard mm-hmm. and you're thinking about how to potentially bottle that and do something with it. That's like how your mind thinks. It's a very creative way to constantly be thinking about the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I've always had that. I, yeah. I, don't, I mean, I've never been able to stop that part. I've always yeah. kind of, I think if, if people are, if I'm in a room and everyone is asking a lot of questions, I ask myself like, what are the questions no one is asking mm-hmm. right now? Because oftentimes I find that it's so easy to go down 
the the rabbit hole that whatever the first question was. Mm-hmm. And I can give you so many examples of where you know we somebody dared to ask the question that no one was asking, and it like completely shifted totally. the whole strategy. Yeah. And I think that that's you know one of those that that to me is like those are the the voices that I want around me. Those are the people that. Um, that that I get a lot of energy out of. They're they're contrarian, mm-hmm. and you know I think that's that's why I've gravitated towards the the field that I'm in because mm-hmm. where I see that more than anything is in there's there's like this founder DNA. There are mm-hmm. there are people who have a willingness to go off and say I'm going to go build something. I know everyone else thinks it's crazy. I know everyone else. Well, people will tell me this is foolish mm-hmm. to go off and do this, but they're not doing it because they're doing it for the money or they're doing it for you know because they. Um, think there's fame involved or anything like that. They're doing it because they're just really excited by this. Mm-hmm. And I think that passion is a really infectious thing. And it, it leads them to become magnets for other people around them. And then those those populations of of passionate people are they just solve things that the world they just build things that the world has never seen before. Mm-hmm. And suddenly what was previously impossible under the traditional construct is now completely within the realm of possibilities. And like those to me are like, that's what I get excited for. So I get out of bed every day. For. And when, when you kind of go back, you know, and I know you're not thinking about these things when you're a kid, you might not connect these dots. You might not necessarily understand this kind of have this awareness about how you are. But do you think, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, your mom being a single parent, um, how much of this kind of, you know, contrarian thinking or, your kind of you know more natural way of being right now, if anything, was shaped by that early part of your life, or do you think it's just kind of how you were, you know, your DNA? Good question. I, um, it, the answer is, is for sure is is both. The you know my so my parents were when I was a kid. You know, I can't remember my earliest memory in life was my parents having a fight, and it was like one of their last fights and then they got divorced. So I've pretty much known my parents as divorced parents all along. And you were how old? I was four years old. And so I haven't known, I haven't, I've never known a like, you know, married household. Like my mom never remarried. Uh, my dad lived up in Dayton. My mom lived in Cincinnati. And so I saw both of them. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because, you know, my parents had their relationship. Uh, my dad was successful in, in business. My mom was, she she worked very very hard. We but I would describe us very much as a a you know middle middle class household. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad would use his success in ways that were you know oftentimes super manipulative. And I resented that in a lot of a lot of ways because I had this relationship with my parents where my dad would come in and tell me once a week we'd meet and he'd be like this is what you need to do, and then he would go off and do his thing and I'd be like mm-hmm. but you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And my mom never told me to do anything. Mm. Um, but man, she got up every single day. She got my brother and me off to school. We would go to school every day. We'd do our sports. We'd do whatever. And then she would work an entire day. And then she would come home and then she would cook for us. Every night she made dinner for us. Um, it was like the one time a day when we were all together, just the, the three of us. Mm-hmm. And we would sit there and we would have our conversation or whatever. I look at that now as a, as a parent and as a professional. And I'm like, oh my God, like mm-hmm. that is so hard to do. Yeah. Because it happens, every, the consistency of it. Yeah. As a kid, you, you just can't appreciate it. It's just, it's just Tuesday, it's Wednesday, it's Saturday. You're like, And Whatever. she's not like calling attention to what she's doing. She's Never just once. doing it. No, yeah. she just did it. Yeah. And ironically, I found over the course of my life, I had my father who was giving me these messages, but not necessarily living by them. 
And I had my mother who never gave me any messages, but she was the example. You know, mm-hmm. she was the one who was doing everything every single day. And like, I, so I look back on it and it's like, I learned more from her examples of, of doing these things than I did from anybody telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of, you know, the nature part of that, that I've, in my, you know, kind of assessment, it would be that. I've really learned more in my life by doing things mm-hmm. as opposed to by somebody telling me what to go off and do. Mm-hmm. And I think that confidence has come from my willingness to, to do that. It means that, you know, I've, I've made a ton, a ton of failures, like a lot of failures. Mm-hmm. And my confidence to like go off and do and make another failure. Yeah. I think it comes from just seeing the consistency in my mom's uh, kind of, you know, every single day working, 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 grinding, grinding, grinding. And then knowing, and then having, you know, knowing that one day she worked in sales and then she would come home periodically and be like, oh my God, I won this amazing account today. It was mm-hmm. so great. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what that meant as a kid, mm-hmm. um, but I knew she was happy about it. Mm-hmm. And in hindsight, I think seeing her, you know, persistence and, you know, knowing that eventually there would be breakthroughs is what's led me in life to like mm-hmm. just experiment by doing things and know that if you keep going at it, keep going at it, like eventually things, things will break your way. Yeah, but don't expect the first one. Don't expect the tenth. Right, it might and, be the hundredth. Right, and I mean it's incredible to learn that you know at such a young age and see it. You know, I think you're you're not only learning, but you're learning to observe other people and and you know follow their lead to some extent. I mean, you're in your work and and with your career, you've had to really be a leader, be out in front. But I'm also assuming that you were learning from other people, like your mom, along the way and how they were going about navigating work and life. That's true. Although I'd say I've never really had like a professional mentor. I've Mm -hmm. never had anybody who said, you know, Chris, I'm going to mentor you and teach you how to do all this stuff. Yeah. Not because people haven't offered. I just have always, I think kind of to my earlier comments, Mm -hmm. like I've always shied away from that and been like, you know, I'll kind of figure it out myself. So I've definitely had a lot of people that I've learned from where I'm like, I'm not going to do it that way. No matter what I do, I'm not doing it that way. Well, so let's talk a little bit about that because sometimes you can learn more about what you don't want to do. You figure out what you want to do by by learning what you don't want to do. And you told me, you said earlier that your father, you know, would kind of come in, tell you what to do and then, you know, not do it himself. Uh, Kind of what was your father's role kind of in that, childhood that kind of did shape you for, you know, for better, I'm assuming, but, you know, maybe, maybe in a more challenging way. Yeah. I think my, you know, my dad has always been somebody who he's my biggest fan. He's my biggest advocate. He's always been, you know, somebody who's always been cheering for me. But if I, you know, if I look at like, what are the pieces that were always, that have been problematic for me, it's like, I I think you have to consider the, the whole like the, the whole performance. It's not just one piece of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you win a game by cheating, for example, like, I, I don't know, it doesn't count as winning. Mm-hmm. Um, if you make a whole bunch of money, but you did it by like taking it from other people mm-hmm. or you did it by, you know, building a really poisonous place or you did it by, you know, I don't know, taking advantage of like an arbitrage that was in your favor for some short period of time. You didn't really add anything like I don't know. To me, that's just are not these real examples? I mean, are these things that you've come across or seen? Whether, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not necessarily my father, but right. but in other certainly in other uh, other businesses and other people around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there've been some wonderful company, like you know, wonderful success stories of people who you'd look at and be like, "Whoa, that person is like super wealthy," mm-hmm. and that, and then you later come to learn that 
you know, they they got that way by exploiting some other thing. And mm-hmm. like to me, that was always that's always been something I've really stayed away from. Mm-hmm. Like I'd rather be, you know, the you know, theoretically at least, I would rather be a you know the second or third place, but do it honestly, mm-hmm. than I would be in first place and have cheated to get there. Mm-hmm. And I've done that to a detriment in, over the course of my life. Mm-hmm. I don't believe now, knowing what I know now, I don't necessarily believe that those trade-offs are mutually exclusive. Like I actually think you can do both. Mm-hmm. Like, I think you can build, I think you can build a wonderful place where you have incredibly high integrity people who are honest and doing things the absolute above board way and be number one in the world at whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah, It's not to say there aren't shortcuts, like they approach you every single day mm-hmm. uh, to get to there a little bit faster. But oftentimes that comes at a cost. And right. like, those are the things that really try and shy away from. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think with all of our, with all of our companies and certainly with Drive, there needs to be this attitude of like performance doesn't justify behavior. Mm-hmm. Like that's part of it. Your, your behavior is part of your performance. And so... I think it's really, really important that the values like integrity and honesty are there. And, you know, there've been times, you know, as an example, I've been on the receiving end of this where I'll never forget, I was in college and at the time I was in a chemistry class and I, I was terrible at chemistry. I just it was a hard concept for me to grok. And what I ended up doing was I went through the first semester and I got the, the lowest grade I'd ever gotten in life, which was at the time was a, a, a C minus. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is terrible. <laughs> Could have showed you my report card a few times. You would have felt a lot better. <laughs> well, that would have helped me then. Yeah. But the, then I went and took it a second semester because I had to take it because I was at the time was pre-med. And uh, you know, I, was, I got my first test back and I got, a, I got an F. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was like, it wasn't, you didn't even get a letter. You just mm-hmm. got a number because it was graded on a bell curve. <laughs> I got like a 13 out of 100. I was like, 13? That's bad. Um, even if it's on a curve, that's probably pretty bad. And I asked my neighbor next to me, like, would you get? And they were like, you know, 73. And I'm like, okay, 13 is real bad. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I go through the whole semester and I get to the end. And I, you know, there was a, I went to Yale and at Yale, the, the deal was you could pull out of a class anytime. You could take a W on your, on your report card mm-hmm. and it wouldn't count against your GPA but you had to get the credit someplace else. Mm-hmm. So I went to my dean and I was like, yeah, and I went to my teacher and I went to the professor and I was like, hey, professor, I was like, you know, my, I'm a little bit thinking I should pull out of the class. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why would you say that? And I was like, well, dude, I got a 13 on the first test and then I got like a, you know, 17 on the next one and I got like a 20 on the, the third one. And he's like, well, most of your grade will be assessed by your performance in the final exam. And I was like, okay, that's cool. That's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Why would I get a higher score on 100% of the material when I am getting like really terrible scores on like, you know, pieces of the material? Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, you'll be off. You'll just, just study. You'll be fine. And I was like, okay, fine. So I went to my dean and I was like, the professor said this. This doesn't sound right to me, but mm-hmm. what do you think? And he was like, you should stay in the class. And I was like, okay, maybe there's something I don't know about. So I proceed to like, you know, just study as hard as I possibly can. And I'm, I literally pulled back-to-back all-nighters and I'm going through it and I'm like doing everything I can. I've got like friends and problem sets and doing everything I can. Walk in to take the test. I take the test immediately know that like nothing has changed. I still am like really struggling to like remember all the formulas and then, you know, because it was like, it was really intricate details. It was like, you had to remember the coefficients in the powers and like, which ones were, you know, numerators, denominators, like they're very, fairly complicated formulas. And then I end up 
Um, because it was, just, it was just rote memorization. You weren't allowed to bring any of the formulas in. So I take the class and then, you know, I end up getting, I got a D minus in the class. I'm actually convinced that I failed. And I was talking to a friend of mine the next year. And I was like, man, thank God that chemistry thing is behind us, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, what, what do you mean? Why was this so hard for you? And I was like, I, dude, how do you remember the formulas? Mm-hmm. And he was like, Wait, I just program them into my calculator. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but they said you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. And he was like, well, but everyone in the class did it. And I was like, oh, yeah. Well, this is bullshit. Right. Um, because here I am, like trying to remember all the coefficients and all mm-hmm. the different formulas that are in there. And meanwhile, the rest of the class is cheating. And so, yeah. you know, I took a D minus in the class. It ended up being the lowest grade. It dragged down my GPA all yeah. through college, like whatever. It was yeah. all that kind of stuff. But I look back on that and like, I don't regret it like, yeah. at all because I'd rather, I'd rather get the D minus yeah. doing it the way that I was supposed to with all the rules than I would have gotten a B by cheating. Right. Like I would have looked back on that. And I'm not saying I've never, you know, I, I can tell you on the other side, like I've learned this lesson the hard way sure. by, you know, having made mistakes sure. and, and like cheated in my own things and, right. and, and felt terrible right. about them. Like right. I feel awful. Like, yeah. This pit in my stomach. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to win that because I, I didn't deserve that. Yeah. Um, like, and do you think that. that also is, where does that come from? This, this kind of integrity piece of you? You know, is that was that role modeled? Was that something you learned by making mistakes? You know, where where does that kind of bolt down belief really come from? It comes from two places. Um, for me, number one, it comes from my grandfather. Mm. So my grandfather, my mom's dad, um, is one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my entire life. He's uh, ninety six years old. He's, he still has every bit of his you know his physical faculties and mental faculties available to him. At one point, was a CEO of a company in Cincinnati. And he has always been the one to like call me out whenever we were doing anything, if we cut the corner or if we cheated or did anything. And he was always the one to to point out that like, you don't have to do it and you can still win. And he's always been that like, just the absolute utmost highest integrity guy that Mm -hmm. that I've ever, ever met. And he's Mm -hmm. been like a godlike figure in Mm -hmm. my life. Like he's always been the example. He's always happy. He's always like... You can't, I've never seen him have a bad day. Mm-hmm. He's like literally the only, I know he's had some really bad ones. Yeah. And he's always been the, the person who's kind of done, who's done that. Um, and, and does his kind of imagery, his kind of, you know, the experience of him, is that something that like literally will play through your mind as you are kind of, you know, in certain situations where maybe you need to kind of have a spark of inspiration to fall back on? Or has that now become so kind of just who you are? No, I saw, I think about it all the time. You think about it a lot. Every day. Yeah. Yeah. He has this, he has this expression. He's like, you gotta, you always have to be five. Mm-hmm. And like, meaning that like, you know, if you look at a five-year-old, they, mm-hmm. they bounce around and things go their way and things go against them. But yeah. no matter how big of a deal it is, you still got to act like you're five years and old. And you think about that. All the time. Yeah. It's, it's really, I think uh, like an amazing thing. I've been actually just kind of growing to, understand that concept a bit, specifically about being youthful in kind of how I am as an adult, because you tend to kind of forget that, you know, all the kind of stuff starts to kind of get into your body and into your being. And it's a hell of a reminder to kind of be able to connect to something that's really, really clear in your mind. And then like, re-embody that kind of youth or that mindset or whatever it is that really is a lot more true to who you actually are. Mm-hmm. And having somebody in your life to really 
and to plant that image is is pretty powerful. No, absolutely. Well, and it helps for me. It helps so much because you have these you know, these problems that run into you every single day, and you know the reality is it doesn't matter how you re- emotionally react to them. Like that's not going to change the outcome. I pr- I promise you. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you can enjoy the challenge of solving those problems then you've all of a sudden taken a problem and turned it into something that you really enjoy. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's an always an opportunity, but, right. um, but I think that that mentality of like, I enjoy being at the you know, absolute epicenter of, these, of this problem. And I'm going to remember that when I get to the other side of it, I'm going to mm-hmm. remember this moment more than I will anything else. Mm-hmm. I think that mentality for me has been it's like probably one of the most valuable lessons mm-hmm. I've learned in life. And I'm still not great at it. Like I, I'm, you know, human as, as anybody else. And sometimes problems get me and man, they get yeah. like really upset and right. I really want to solve them. And I feel like, and then I have to remind myself if I'm lucky enough to catch myself and remind myself that like, hey, you know, this probably isn't that big of a deal. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, having that, that role model for me has mm-hmm. been something of, that's been probably the biggest gift. In and you said there was again. a second thing? Yeah. So the second thing was I was in, when I was in high school, I was chasing around uh, different squash coaches around wherever I could get, you know, wherever I get access to them. And one of them was this, uh, was a coach at another high school. And so, I went to the school and they had this thing at the school. It's called the honor code. And you know, I went up to this point, I had gone to uh, public school. So like, you know, there was no honor code. It was just like, you know, <laughs> kind of a free for all. Mm-hmm. And people cheated all the time. And it was just kind of the way things got done. You didn't do your homework. You copied your buddies. Like it did. It happened a lot. Then I got to this other high school and they talked to me about the honor code. And I was like, okay, the honor code. I figured it was just, you know, something that nobody really paid attention to. And they had this summer reading program and you had to read three books. And we came in and the very first class and the very first day, the teacher hands out a multiple choice test that is on the summer reading just to see if he even did the summer reading, hands out the quiz or the test and then walks out of the room. And I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. no, t- if you did that where I went to high school before this, people <laughs> ever would have been like, so, you know, what'd you get at number seven? Right. <laughs> Not one person said a thing. Yeah. Everybody was hands down going through the test. Nobody said a word to anybody. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, like I've never, I've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, they took it so seriously. And the crazy thing about the school was that, you know, you could, you could get caught doing drugs. You could get caught staying out late. You could get caught doing alcohol. You could get caught doing like a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like, you know, it's like you're in trouble, but you're not going to get kicked out of school. Mm-hmm. If you cheated, mm-hmm. you were go- like, no mm-hmm. questions asked, mm-hmm. gone. Uh, if you lied, gone. Yeah. If you stole, gone. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it was, it was just one of those things that when I, when I saw it done and, yeah. and the school operates at the absolute highest performance. Yeah. And to me, to see that, just to have that example was one where I was like, well, I want to do it that way. Right. It's so black and white. There's just There's zero tolerance. No tolerance. Yeah. And, you know, it's like... It's, and and it, then the, the fact that they're performing at, at a high level with that um, totally. kind of, you know, rules, those, those integrity rules says a lot. It is. And, yeah. even though, and even though they told us this, this was like stated philosophy of the mm-hmm. school. Every year, there were a couple of kids who would get in trouble. And they did something. And if they, the kid who fessed up for it and said, yep, I did that. And they would get their punishment. It would be a slap on the wrist. No big deal. Mm-hmm. The kids who got kicked, every year, some kids got kicked out because they would do something, they'd get in trouble for it. And they'd say, hey, you need to say what, 
did you do this? And they would lie about doing it. And it was like the cover up kind of thing. Hmm. And they get kicked out, no questions asked. And it was like one of those things that you're just like, whoa. Whoa, you but learn, right. But it's such a hard, it's such a hard thing because, you know, as a human being, I think everybody desires to do right. Mm-hmm. And when you know you've done something wrong, it's just like you have that pit in your stomach. You're like, oh, I hate it. And they yeah. certainly do not want to own up to it. Right. And the lesson that the school teaches you is that no matter what you did, it's way better. To just mm-hmm. say that you did it, right? Then to pretend that you didn't and to lie about it, right? I think it's more complicated, and then you pull in other people and like all this stuff, right. and like, man, having just lived through that, I think you know that that for me was the second thing in life where I was like, I just yeah. I have to operate that way. I'd rather do that and take the consequences of that versus trying to get wrapped around in all the other ways to operate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's another way. I'm just kind of hearing you say that, and there's a value around freedom. You know, in this case, it's it's not freedom of of money, it's or freedom of time. It's it's freedom of not having to be caught up in something that's pulling you away from just being with the what is, even if that's that there was a mistake. You know, just the freedom of being able to own whatever is yep. is something that you're learning kind of at a young age is is really valuable. Yeah. Well, I think it also gives you a freedom of mind, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So I don't have to worry about. And I've you know done this for sure, where you you, you didn't tell the truth, and you're constantly worried. Like, mm-hmm. do they right. know? Do they so know? consuming. It's like all of a sudden that headspace is consumed right. by your fear that somebody will discover yeah. this mistake that you made. And meanwhile, it's like you know by running at the mistake and just being like, yeah, I did that. All of a sudden, yeah. you're like, what? Well, yeah. well, there's nothing else for people to say now. Yeah, and and I want to kind of come back to how like some of these learnings really are beneficial today in your role. But I'm curious, um, I kind of want to go back and talk a little bit about squash. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I think that like for me, uh, at that time in my life, athletics, you know, really were a few things, you know, one of which was really important was a way for me to kind of move my body and to, you know, move some energy and have some fun and joy and things that, you know, really felt like they were really impactful. I wasn't thinking about any of that at the time. I just thought I was playing sports and maybe it was the right thing to do, the cool thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for you, I know squash really was an important part of your childhood into college, right? You played in college? Yeah, played in college. Yeah. And so tell me like, what, what was it about squash that kind of, you know, got you so involved in it and and you know what was it that you liked about it what got you into it kind of what did it do for you so why i like it so much i have no idea like if, if you were to just describe to me a sport where you're like all right here's the deal i'm going to put you in a room it's going to be an all white room and you're going to have a ball and you're going to chase it around and like that's it i'd be like i don't understand it's not that what's so fun about that but there's something about it that that for me, I just I I love, mm-hmm. and I think it's because there was just there's a lot of math, there's a lot of angles, there's a lot of triangles, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, and it's physically like a very demanding game. But if I think back on it, like one of the reasons I really loved it is it was it was very clear. Like if you wanted to get better at it, you just played more, mm-hmm. and the more you played, the better you got. Like it was a it's a very fair system. It's like you know you. You do more sprints, you get in better shape. It's a um, if you hit ten shots, you're going to learn how to hit the one. And I like those situations where there's a direct correlation to the amount of work that you put into something, and you get something mm-hmm. out of it. Even though sometimes it might be a teeny tiny incremental improvement. That for me was always 
something I enjoyed about it where I've been very lucky to have had, it had been, you know, reasonably good at it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now what did I get out of that? Oh my gosh, like so much of where I am today mm-hmm. in hindsight is because I was at a young age, very excited by it, very passionate about it. And it led me to do things that nobody else would do. And, you know, I was 16 years old. I was like calling up coaches around the world and asking them mm. to take me on, to like train me mm. to do all this kind of stuff. I, you know, most 16 year olds, like, who would you call? You're like, yeah. go be good at whatever you want to do. Um, I was lucky that I kind of had that, that path mm-hmm. that I really wanted to pursue. And, and, and where were your parents in that? I mean, it, it sounds to me like you were pretty independent in how you were navigating this, you know, in your mom's, you know, single mother working, you know, were your parents involved in that journey at all? Yeah, my dad, my dad was for sure. Because mm-hmm. this is for, this was, you know, he's the one who got me into it in the okay. first place. And to him, this was almost like, you know, living a little bit vicariously yeah. through me, not in an unhealthy way, in, yeah. a, in a very good way. But so he was there along the way and, and that helped, that helped a lot. Um, my mom was like, you know, she just didn't have time. She yeah. was like, whatever, yeah. you do your thing, I'm doing mine. Right. The, um, you know, she's like, I would love to go on a date this weekend. And I'm like, why don't you come watch me play squash? And she's yeah. like, have you seen how much work I've put in during the week here? Right, um, right. So it was one of those things that uh, it just wasn't her, her area of focus for me. Yeah. But my dad was was definitely a big part of it, and you know, which was great. And I got to a point where this was something that I was started to get better at, and I started to to win a lot and mm-hmm. won locally, and then would win on a state level, and then was good for my age group nationally, and then had the the idea that I might be able. I remember being approached by one of the college coaches, and mm-hmm. he approached me about like, "Hey, would you ever consider playing in college?" And mm-hmm. I was like, "You can get into school for playing squash." Yeah, that was something that you, was not on your radar when you, you were just playing the game. I was just playing. Yeah, yeah I it was, was really competitive. Young it was too. fun. You were enjoying it, but then all of a sudden, you know, you start to get approached by colleges. That right. changes the dynamic. Yeah, and then yeah. all of a sudden it becomes like a thing, and I was right. like, "Huh, well, that's really cool." If I just did what I like doing, then maybe I could get into a better school. And, uh-huh. and so I decided I would try and get better at it. Yeah. So I just, it was always this thing to drive, drive me to work yeah. at it and just to keep grinding at it and grinding and grinding and grinding. And it was one of those things where I found the more, the more I played, the more I did things, the, the better I got at it. And to the point where, and you know, I got me into college and then I don't think I would have gotten into Yale if, if it hadn't been because I was on the, the recruiting list for the, the squash team. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when I was in college, actually, like it became like, it got maybe a little bit too crazy because I, I started to wonder how good I could get. Mm. And I wondered, I was seeing this pattern of like, well, the more time I put in, the better I got at it. So what if, what if I dropped out of college mm-hmm. and then just played pro? Like how good could I, could I be mm-hmm. like number one in the world? Mm-hmm. That was my mentality. You were thinking about this, yeah. And Were was, you thinking about this, that same mindset with other things, you know, no. like, well, if I worked that hard, I could, no. or this was the thing that started to be the thing for you. This was the thing for yeah. me. Like I was good at other stuff. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I, I think there were physics for me for whatever reason in high school, I was, I was excellent at physics. The, the, like the, just the way the things came together, the problems, the teachers, it was just a perfect storm of things. And I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But squash was the one thing I was like, I I never thought, man, I could be the best physicist in the world. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, right. I thought if I trained, if I worked yeah. hard enough, I think I could be the best squash well, player in the world. Squash was probably a lot more fun. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't. I kind of like a good physics problem now. Uh-huh. Again, the yeah. uh, you know the, but the the squash stuff for me was it was just it was just I, you're right. I mean, I, it was yeah. fun. It was just yeah. opening doors for me. It was doing stuff. And yeah. so my sophomore year, 
after Christmas, I decided that I was going to drop out of college. Hmm. And I came back and I uh, went to school and I was like, hey, I would like to drop out of college. This coach on the team was like, awesome, go for it. Mm-hmm. The, my dean was like, Mm-mm, bad mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. Like, that doesn't work. Well, mm-hmm. you know, there's no study abroad. There's no year off. You have four years to graduate or you are out. Mm-hmm. So you need, to, you need to drop out of college. There's mm-hmm. not like going on leave or anything. Right. And you might not get back in. And I was like, that's okay. I don't care. Because mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to try this so badly yeah. to try and play every day. And so my mentality was, okay. This is midway through your sophomore year? Yeah. Yeah. January, my sophomore year. Mm -hmm. So my mentality was, well, okay, if I'm going to do this, I should probably go play with somebody pretty good. So I picked up the phone and I called the guy at the time who was the number one player in the world. This guy named Peter Nickel and his training partner uh, was number four in the world, Chris Walker. And they were going to play at a tournament in New York. And so Yale's in New Haven, about an hour train right away. And I told him, I was like, hey, Peter, we met a couple of times. I doubt you remember me. but You just tracked this guy down. It, yeah, but it's a small world. Like okay. the squash, squash world's not like... You yeah, know, but I mean, it's not like it's people. like, uh, you know, at a time where I don't think, I mean, you know, internet and like, you know, there's easy access to kind of just like, I don't know, hitting up no, somebody was, on Instagram or something. It was you know? not like that. No, yeah. he, was a couple of, he was a couple of phone calls away, but okay. not, not too many. Yeah. So I, I got him to agree to meet with me. So I met with him in New York and he was there for this tournament for the top 25 players in the world. And so was Chris. And I, I sat with him and I was like, listen, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. I was like, I've never had enough time to put into this, but I think if I played with you guys every single day, I think I, think I could beat you by the end of the year. <laughs> and they were like, what? How, how, how old were these guys? Uh, they're probably like late 20s, uh-huh. 30 years old. Yeah, so like, they've been at it. They oh were ahead God, of these you. These guys are like they're, way ahead. Yeah, they're, they're like, all top right. Top guys in the world. Yeah. yeah. They're like hot stuff. All right, sure. And you're telling them, hey, um, like, I think I can get you. And so they were like, <laughs> all right, well, you know, I don't know about that, but why don't you, we'll let you, if you pay our rent, then we'll let you sleep on our couch in our flat in London. And I was like, cool. So I don't yeah. have to pay a coach or anything. They're like, nope, just pay yeah. our rent. And I was like, all right, no problem. So I started living in London on their couch. He dropped out of school. Dropped out of school. Yep. Moved to London. Was living on their couch. And within four months, I had learned two of the most important lessons I was ever going to learn in life. Number one was that I was never going to be a pro squash player. Mm. Like those guys were just too good. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like they were multiple orders of magnitude better than me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, they were built for speed. I was built for comfort. Like it mm. just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the second most important lesson, which ended up being more valuable than that, was that you can pick up the phone and you can cold call anybody you want in the world mm-hmm. and you'd be amazed yeah. who calls you back. Yeah. And that lesson ended up being super valuable for me. And that's yeah. something that I, I still think today yeah. is the, the most important tool that I have. It's just the willingness to cold call somebody and, and ask them whatever it is yeah. I'm trying to get. That's great. So, so how long do you end up in London? So I'm there for a year. And so I so up, you were you were trying it for a full year. Yeah, because I was four months in and I was like, it doesn't feel like I'm gonna get there. And they're like, oh, I don't know. You know, yeah. and it, yeah, the the first thing that happened was like I just I didn't have the physical fitness, even mm-hmm. though I'd been playing every single day. Mm-hmm. I hadn't been playing at that level at that speed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the speed was so much faster. So to play at that speed meant I was effectively sprinting. Mm-hmm. And while I'm waiting college, have to sprint for like a point or two. Mm-hmm. This was sprinting every single point of mm-hmm. every single game of every single match. And like, I just didn't have the physical capability to, to do that without running out of energy. 
So the first four months was really around like, it was just track workouts. I mean, I was just running around in the rain in London, just mm-hmm. running around this track again and again and again, 800, 800, 800, 800. Mm-hmm. And until I got to the point where finally I could at least survive for mm-hmm. a game mm-hmm. like with one of these guys. And then they were like, well, you should, you should keep at it. Like, don't go back to school yet. And so I went through, a, you know, and I'm, every day, you know, it was, it was such a uh, humbling point in life. Cause like, I didn't, I went, I went into the squash court. It's like my office, right? Mm-hmm. I'd go to the squash court every single day and I'd play with them and I would lose every single day. And mm-hmm. not like, you know, oh, it's really close. Like, mm-hmm. you know, nine, seven, it was like nine, oh, nine, oh, nine, oh, every single game. You were getting a 13 I mean, on the exam. Tackling. Again, yeah, over exactly. and over again. Yeah. And I'm showing up for it again and again, yeah. but those guys, Pete and Chris were, they were so nice and they spent so much time with me. Yeah. And they, you know, it was, I think they were, they were some of the more, some of the most humble, you know, this guy's the number one player in the world and he's like playing with me like yeah. almost every day. Yeah. Because, All because you picked up the phone. Well, yeah. And I, I think it was also one of those things that he looked back on it and, you know, I think he, somebody did that for him. Yeah. And yeah. so he was doing that for me. Also a pretty good thing to learn at that point in your life. Yeah, absolutely. And think back on now, right. you know, how impactful that could be for somebody. Right. And, you know, and eventually I got, I got good enough that I could be a good training mm-hmm. dummy for them. And, yeah. you know, and was, you were paying the rent and I was paying the rent. So, <laughs> uh, so that worked, but yeah. the, um, so anyway, you know, I, I, that was for me such a, just a formative, you know, a formative period in my life mm-hmm. when just learning all this stuff. And then, you know, it was like, okay, well, what should I do next? We should probably go back to college. Mm-hmm. That's probably a good idea since I'm not going to be a pro squash player. And then, you know, it was kind of like, well, what should I do next? And I was, I always wanted to be as my backup career, a venture capitalist. Mm. And I didn't even really know what that was, yeah. but I'd like kind of read about it and mm-hmm. was really, really interested in it. And then, you know, I just assumed, so I got back into college, um, which was a very stressful process. Mm-hmm. Like my, my reapplication process was like 15 pages versus. Yeah, I was going to say, so did they, did they hold that to you, hold you to that? They, they did. It was, yeah. you know, it was my coach. I remember my squash coach calling me being like, I don't know if I can get you back in, man, yeah. uh, one day, but you know, he did. And, you know, finished up my career there and then decided that I'd go to my backup career venture capital. And mm-hmm. so the first thing I did was I picked up the phone and I started cold calling all the venture capitalists in the world. And let me just ask you about that because, you know, I think today it's a little bit more known uh, and understood what venture is and, and, you know, maybe even how to navigate a career in it. And, you know, certainly I think, you know, and maybe it's more prevalent in the Ivies where, you know, people really aspire to be in venture. There's a, there's a path, you know, that's laid out. When you say that, you know, this is your backup plan, and you had always wanted to do that. Like, when when did you start to learn about venture and realize that it was something that you wanted to do? Was that in college? No, it was, it was in high school. In high school, and and kind of where were you getting those threads? So, just out of sheer coincidence, I, I decided that uh, I would I needed to start reading the newspaper in high school because it felt like something I had to do. I had mm-hmm. to learn about the world, so I bought a subscription to the Wall Street Journal, and this newspaper showed up. And the very first day, this is how you spent your. Squash racket stringing money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. so the very first Smart. day I got my subscription in the in the mail, you know, in the driveway or whatever comes to the newspaper. I get the newspaper, and on the front page of the newspaper is this story about this 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 business. I didn't even know what it was that was sending money back to the state of Michigan because the state of Michigan required them to tell them what they had put their investment money into. And I didn't, you know, at the time, I didn't know what was going on. But what had happened was 
the firm was, I, I just knew that if anybody can afford to send back $100 million and not miss it, I was like, well, I don't even know what that is. But if you've got that much money, like it must be pretty good. So I started, I was like, what is this thing? So it turns out this was a moment in time when state of Michigan had just changed their laws and they forced the university to disclose whatever the investments were that they held. And the, one of their investments was in a firm in California called Sequoia Capital. And Sequoia Capital was a, a venture capital firm, a very storied and successful va- uh, venture firm. They were the original backers of Apple and Google and Yahoo and Cisco and like so many companies. And it turned out that when Michigan said, hey, you need a, we need you to tell us what companies that you've invested our money into, they said no. And they said, well, why not? And they said, well, the, the stealth nature of our investments is one of the most valuable assets that our companies have. And doing so would undermine their ability to be successful. So I'm sorry, but we just can't have you as an investor anymore. So here's all your money back, which would have been a non-trivial thing to do to go find $100 million to be able to send it back just because somebody asked for a report. Mm -hmm. Like the intuitive thing would be like, we just send them a report and make them sign an NDA or something. Mm -hmm. And Sequoia is like, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. And so I kind of learned that, you know, started learning about Sequoia, started learning about um, venture capital from this very first article. And I was probably, I don't know, 17, 18 years old at the time. And, decide, and all of a sudden I was like, what is this thing? What is this venture capital thing? And I started looking it up and mm-hmm. the internet was, it was in its infancy, but it was there mm-hmm. and you could, you could get access to a bunch of information. It took you a long time to get something to show It was hard, screen, yeah, you had to dial yeah. up, but whatever. <laughs> it was faster than it was the year before. Right. So I didn't notice it. It's true. And so I started looking up information and every single time I learned about it, it became this intoxicating Mm. world that I just needed to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I loved about it was, number one was the, you know, this was working on the cutting edge of of whatever was next. And, you know, whatever it was, whether that was going to be the internet or it was going to be, at the time, it was uh, looking at personal computers or apps that were going on those computers and feeling like those were all the things I was really excited by. And, you know, the companies that were coming out of this were changing the way that everything was done. And like that to me was so exciting. The other thing that was amazing was the personal stories of the founders in these companies was something that I just, I felt like I could really relate to mm. it. They felt like every one of them was somebody who had a story of they saw the world one way, even though everyone else told them that it couldn't be that way. And they pursued it anyway. Mm-hmm. And the result were, you know, so many examples of people who had nothing but the you know their their willingness to work really really hard their passion for whatever problem they were solving and the end result was a success that was just dwarfed any of the traditional advice that anybody else had ever given you that world to me was something i was i would love to work on that yeah. every single day and 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 why was that so appealing i mean to some extent that and we talked about this a little bit like that scares away most people most people go, wow, look so hard. You know, they're solving problems that seem impossible to solve. You know, geez, I don't know that I want to like sign up for that. You know, you, you're running towards that. You know, what is that in you that just kind of like, you know, really feels that way, sees it that way? I just, I love change. Uh-huh. Like if anything stays the same, I get really bored. Mm-hmm. Like I need things to constantly evolve and constantly improve. And this was the way for things to improve faster. Now, there were costs to that, there were, you know, which was failure. And there were a lot of companies and there were a lot of founders that didn't work out. And there were companies that worked out where the founders didn't work out. Yeah. And there were you know, investments that 
where the companies worked out, but the investment didn't work out. And there were, you know, all these different examples of what, and opportunities for failure along the way. However, I think what I saw in that was it kind of didn't matter how many failures you'd had as long as when the success happened, it was such a big success, it was such a big outcome that it made up for all the losses. Mm-hmm. And and that to me was, you know, kind of went back to like, you know, if I think about my mom and like what she was like mm-hmm. every it's like almost like every single day was yeah. a little bit of a failure. It was a ground yeah. failure, ground failure. But then she would get these wins. Yeah. And the wins would make up for all the losses. Yeah. And it's almost like, but you wouldn't have appreciated the wins unless you'd had all of the all of the failures along the way. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there's something in the human psychology where it's like, I appreciate failure because, you know, and I appreciate success because I failed so many times yeah. that when it happens, it's, it's like such an emotionally successful thing. It feels mm. so good. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious if there was kind of a tie back to your mom or your dad and seeing kind of, you know, how they were and, and, and if that was part of, you know, making you the way you are. So you eventually go work at Sequoia. So you, you land this job, right? With yep. this company that you've been reading about with your squash racket money and, and like, right. there you are, right? It's pretty surreal. Did you go from Yale directly to work no. at Sequoia? No, I tried. Okay. Um, but, you know, so I went out of college and I, I literally got a car. Uh, I had like 200 bucks in my account and I flew out, took the money to go to California and I got a rental car and I started driving down Sand Hill Road. And I, I literally went in and I started knocking on the doors. Well, they were, you weren't knocking on the doors. You'd go to the reception desk mm-hmm. and you know, I'd walk in and have my resume and I'd say, hi, I'm, I knew who ran that firm. And mm-hmm. I'd say, hi, I'm here to see so-and-so. And they'd say, do you have an appointment? I'd say, no, I don't have an appointment. Um, and they'd say, well, is he expecting you? No, he's not expecting me. Um, here's my resume. I just graduated from Yale. I'd really like to meet with him. And they were like, well, I, that's not really how this works. Mm-hmm. And I was like, please, I've come a long way. Can I just get 15 minutes with them? Mm-hmm. And most of them told me to go away. A couple of them did take the meeting. This kind of goes back to like, mm-hmm. call, like you'd be amazed mm-hmm. who I was able to meet with. Mm-hmm. Like, in hindsight, I'm like, I can't believe I got time with those folks. And I'm just curious, was that like a, was that, was that like fun for you? Was it like, I'm, I'm screwed if I don't get a job? Like what's running in that you're like willing to uh, knock on these doors and put yourself into situations over and over again where you know the answer is most likely that's not how this works. Well, I think, you know, I really think it goes back to the squash career of like, yeah. look, if you, if you call enough people, yeah. one of them will say yes. Right. And you get your ass it. kicked enough times by the top people. Yeah. Eventually you'll Me, break through. One, right. Yeah. Um, but the reality was, you know, I only need, I was like, I only need one person to say yeah. yes. So, what if, what if only 1% of them say yes? Okay, I just need to go visit 100 places. Well, mm. are there 100 places? Yeah, there's a couple hundred places. Oh, yeah. well, I have two chances then. Yeah. Was it though um, at all kind of defeating to hear the no's over and over again? Or were you just like, fuck it, I'll find one eventually? After, you know, after a while, you just get shameless about it. Where yeah. You're like, whatever. You know, they're probably yeah. going to say no, but what's the worst thing they can do? Right. Say no. So it's like, there's no harm in, mm. in hearing no. It's a fine answer. And in fact, it's, it's, you know, it's a great answer. Like, Yes is the best. Mm-hmm. A quick no is is second to that. Just don't give me the long maybe. Like right. the ones that that were terrible, the ones that make you like sit there and wait and wait right. and wait and then say no. Right. It's like it's still on. true to this day. Oh, the, absolutely. The long maybe. The long the worst, maybe. Yeah. Just don't give me the long maybe. Yeah. So the um, you know, the reality is for me to be able to like go and get that. Uh, I was saying I had said no to a bunch of jobs that I'd gotten in New York uh, coming out of college because there were a bunch of recruiting cycles that I had participated in, but I'd said no to them. And then I went to, and my theory was like unvarnished confidence. I'm, I'm going to solve this. I'm going to get a job at a venture capital firm. 
Well, let me tell you, um, if you only need a 1% success rate, um, it's because 1% of the time something has to happen. I'm pretty sure like the answer is it's actually a 0% success rate because I tested it mm-hmm. and I got a no from everybody across the board. No jobs available to mm-hmm. undergrads. Like it's, it's your waste. It was a total this, waste of time. Your whole theory is... Uh, is my theory was flawed. Blown, yeah. yeah, totally shot. Right? Yeah. So it's now... It's not just a numbers game. No, was, this was not. It turns out that's how the world works. So then I decided, well, now, you know, I got to get a job. I was like, oh, crap, you know, I got nothing. I got like 200 bucks in my bank account. So I went to Colorado and I started, I had to move with my girlfriend at the time because I certainly wasn't going to go home. And I was dating this girl who was from Colorado. I was living in her parents' basement. And then... I'm sure her parents were thrilled about that. <laughs> they were very nice and very supportive, actually. Okay, <laughs> in hindsight... That was before you had the beard. You weren't, you weren't quite as uh, scary looking. In hindsight, like if my daughters come home with some guy from college and like they're living in the basement... Yeah, well, like, see, you're going to have to um, be a little more forgiving than you, than you wanted. And so I got a job. I was working as a fly fishing guide and taking people fishing. And then I was cold calling back to all of the the advice I got from the venture firms was go to New York and get a job on Wall Street um, because there's good training programs there and they'll teach you about business. Because mm-hmm. and to be fair, like I graduated the political science degree, which is like a, as liberal arts as it gets. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I wasn't trained to do anything at all. And you know, I I so I got it eventually. I went back to one of these jobs. And ironically, if somebody asked me for advice today, like how to become a venture capitalist, mm-hmm. I'm like, stay as far away from Wall Street as possible. Mm-hmm. That's not going to train you to do this. Mm-hmm. But at the time, that was the, the prevailing advice. So I was cold calling to the investment banks who had already hired through the recruiting process, especially ones who were like, dude, you turned us down. And I was like, yeah, but like, you know, now I'm in my parent, my girlfriend's parents' basement. And so yeah. I, that sounds like a really good job. <laughs> right. um, but I couldn't say it that way, right. but uh, that's effectively what I was doing. And what came out of it was eventually I got a job and uh, in an analyst program in um, for a bank in New York, and then was there and basically was like, yes, I've got a landing pad at least I can move out of the basement. So in October, I moved from moved from Colorado to New York, started working in New York, and I kept on top of those venture guys. Like I kept calling them, I kept giving them updates on what I was doing. And then a year later, there was an opportunity within the, the bank to move to the San Francisco office, and I was like. Perfect, because there were no venture capitals in New York. So I needed to get as close to them as possible. And everyone in New York was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, New York is the center of finance. You're moving away from the center of finance. I was like, I don't want to be in the center of finance. I want to be in the center of technology and venture capital. And that's out there. So I move out there, kept on top of all the venture guys. And then eventually, was fortunate enough to um, finish my program. And then I got a job at one of the later stage venture capital firms. And it turns out that the the firm that I worked at, there, this was a later stage investment firm. They only invest in late stage companies, companies that were about to go public. And the job was for the associates, the the young folks in the firm, to cold call into these companies. And I was like, perfect. I was like, I'm born to do this. So I show up and I got my job, and which is literally, I have a desk phone. And I had a um, had a laptop, and I had a uh, a phone book. It was it was a you know trade rag. It was the Internet Retailer 500. It was a list of the the phone book of the top 500 e-commerce companies in the world at the time. And my job was literally to look up, turn the page, look up the company, type in the CEO's name, look up the phone number, dial in, and say, "Hey, I'm calling from a venture capital firm. Are you an interesting company?" And they'd say, "No." And I turned to page two, and I'd say, "Hi, I'm calling from a venture capital firm. Are you an interesting company?" And say, "No." 
And eventually, you, t- you talked to enough companies that you had about a 4% yield to get from uh, a phone call to actually a, a meeting with a company that was interesting. And the reality was, it was just a game of numbers. It was yeah. brute force. Whoever made the most phone calls found the most investment opportunities and was the most successful in the job. And so I loved it. And mm-hmm. it was great. Mm-hmm. So here I was doing this again and again and again. You've and had this experience and other things that you're doing. So you now know yeah, there is some truth to the numbers game. And this is yeah. where it's playing out. And these guys convinced me it wasn't a 0% chance. It's right. actually a 4% chance. Right. So this is like an infinite improvement. Right. So now I'm calling through the book and I'm finding these CEOs. And then... Um, you know, I was out of all things, all of a sudden I get a phone call from Sequoia and they're like, hey, there's a recruiter. And she said, hey, Sequoia is opening a position for their later stage fund. Would you be interested in talking to them? Now, I'd only been at this firm for a year, but this was Sequoia. This was right. like the high school dream of mine. I was like, I'm, right. I'm going to take the meeting. Yeah. So I went and I took the meeting and happened to be in the right place at the right time and got a job at Sequoia, which was like my dream it's job. Awesome. Like yeah. this was like the whole thing. It's it's a, um, it's not just your dream job, like dream job. It was, I mean, it was awesome. And, you know, I had the chance while I was there to be, you know, on the team of folks that was like, you know, every week it was like, in comes Drew Houston, the CEO of Dropbox, to give us an update on his, you know, file sharing company. Uh, in comes Brian Chesky, mm-hmm. the founder of Airbnb. He's mm-hmm. going to talk about how he's renting out his couch for $30 billion. Right. Uh, in comes, you know, CEO X of the next multi-billion dollar company. And, you know, you're right there on yeah. the front lines. And I'm getting trained um, by, through in the halls of this place. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, it was just like... Pretty exciting. A, oh, it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah. It was really exceptional. I feel like I'm so fortunate I was there. And I, I frankly was so fortunate I was there when I was there mm-hmm. because at the time, this whole thing was shifting in technology where, you know, Sequoia used to only, in my very first meeting at Sequoia, I'll never forget it. There was a, we sat around a table, there were 12 or 14 or so people in the room. And we had this little uh, you know, Excel sheet that was printed out on paper and had a list of company names on it. And so you look at the company names, we go through, we talk about all the companies and do we want to invest in this company or not? So you get this one company and they're based up in Petaluma. Petaluma is about 10 miles north of San Francisco. We love the founders. The, oh my gosh, this was like the immigrant come to America, genius PhD, uh, dropout turned founder entrepreneur. Like it ticked all the boxes. Uh, the market was enormous. The product was the first of its kind. It had this amazing network effects. Unit economics were, were stellar. Everything about this is great. And the partnership was like, pass. And I was like, wait, I thought we just said it was great. And they mm-hmm. were like, yeah, but it's based in Petaluma. Mm. And that's too far from Silicon Valley for mm. us to invest. Mm. And I was like, what? Yeah. I was 10 miles too far from Silicon Valley. And the reality is that the thesis behind this was, um, and Sequoia had this famous uh, analogy that they say they only invest within a bicycle ride at their office. Because if you look at like what was driving those companies, it was the people who were building the products that were these world-defining things. And the only place you could find the people who were really truly specialized to build these things, and you could find them in large quantities, was in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And you could literally, there's a, like a lineage, there's this famous poster, you can see like the companies and you can follow the teams and it's wherever the teams went that those companies were successful. Mm-hmm. So here I was like just kind of blown away by this phenomenon. And then all of a sudden, every, this is about 2006, then everything changed. And we had this one offsite and Mike Moritz, who was on the board at Google, 
and was seeing what was going on with the internet and with cloud computing and was seeing all the distribution centers uh, that, um, or the, um, sorry, not the distribution centers, the data centers that, uh, that Google was opening up. And he was like, no, it's amazing. The, the things that used to be, you know, we needed hours and hours of engineers to go on off and build. And these like specialized engineers who were like writing code at like the, you know, the bare metal layer mm-hmm. of a tech stack. Like they were now obsolete. Yeah. And it wasn't just Google, it was Amazon, it yeah. was Rackspace, it was everybody who was now taking what is previously this incredibly scarce, you know, specialized engineering set and making it commoditized, opening up to the rest of the world. So this allows you to start to think about how you might be able to get out of Silicon Valley and still have success with founders and all the other checkboxed. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. This and is so where- this is kind of where you start to get the spark to for drive? Well, not yet for drive. I mean, this was, you know, still, we're, I'm trying to just invest in Petaluma. Let's mm-hmm. Hold on for Ohio just for right. a second. Um, <laughs> you know, a bit uh, of a, <laughs> a further stretch. Yeah, there's a couple yeah. mountains and rivers beyond that. Um, yeah. And so the mentality was, the, the implications of this was that this is, this is a tectonic shift in venture. Mm-hmm. That the implications of this were the majority of the market cap historically in tech was built within Silicon Valley. If this was right, then the majority of the market cap would be built outside of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And it would really be the application of a technology infrastructure to traditional industries that would enable the products and services of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea was, let's go invest in those. Yeah. And so the firm started opening up offices in China and mm. India and Israel and Brazil and Europe and everything else and extended its platform from what was only investing to a bicycle ride within a bicycle ride of the office to like all of these global places. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was amazing to see it happen. It was it was an incredible time to be there. It, it's a it was a an incredible time in your life, really. I mean, you're seeing you got this dream job and all these incredible companies that are transformative are really emerging at that time. And then you're seeing the entire venture space really shift to a global platform. It's a pretty phenomenal period in kind of this 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 industry, this you know cycle that you're really at the epicenter of, of this change. Totally. It's pretty... Uh, like, no, it was amazing. amazing. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's the kind of thing I think people will look back in history and say, that was one of the most defining moments yeah. in the history of look all global changed. economies, yeah. right? So, so t- let's talk about Drive. Tell me, you know, kind of what, what was the, the next kind of, or, the, or the, the last kind of big impetus to get you to come back and start Drive? Well, so, you know, here I am in my dream job during this dream time getting all, you know, every dream is, every day is a dream kind of thing. And at the time, you know, we were looking for what's next. We'd gone to China, we'd gone to all these different places. And uh, Doug, who was running the firm, comes to me on days as Chris. He's a really deep voice as Chris. Um, we'd like you to go make a recommendation on Sequoia Capital Turkey. And I was like, Doug, I, I don't know anything about Turkey. I was like, I've never been to Turkey. And he was like, neither have we. So you're just as equipped as anybody else to make a recommendation. And I was like, shit, how do I do that? So I'm Googling like the Turkish dollar because like I didn't even know it was a lira. Like I'm yeah. like, try, you know, everything is foreign to me. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. But I'm collecting all this data and GDP per capita and all this kind of stuff. And then in a, a seemingly unrelated event, this guy, John Kasich, gets elected governor of Ohio. And um, I didn't think anything of it, except that uh, Kasich ends up asking one of the Sequoia partners, the senior partners, Mark Kwame, to come out and run economic development for the state of Ohio. So Mark leaves and, and he's doing his thing. I'm looking up the turkey stuff. And I ended up, um, you know, as we started looking at other companies outside of Silicon Valley, we were actually looking at a company here in Columbus. 
So I'm the point person for it. I come out to Columbus and I was like, oh, Mark's in Columbus. Let me call Mark. And so I call Mark and said, let's meet up. So we go to dinner. So we sit down at dinner. It was a, we went to 11 up on High Street there. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it was the summertime and you know, around, this must have been 2011 or so. Yeah, 2011. And uh, we start chatting and I was like, you know, he's like, what's going on in Sequoia? And I was like, oh, dude, it's so fun right now. I was like, we're going to Turkey. We're doing all this stuff. It's amazing. And he's like, whoa, that's crazy. I was like, I know. It's so fun though. Um, I was like, what's going on in Ohio? And he was like, Ohio is amazing. And I was like, come on, dude. I just told you Turkey. Yeah. Like you're going to, you're going to now pimp, you know, Columbus to me. Like no way I'm falling for that. And he's like, why would you say that? I was like, dude, I grew up in Cincinnati. Like I know what goes on in the Midwest. Like it's like, it's the most boring place in the world. It's like Rust Belt. It's like everything. It's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, look, I understand why you have that perception. He's like, that frankly was my perception. He's like, I'd never been to Ohio before coming to do this. And my expectation based on everything I'd read in the newspapers was that the rivers were on fire, the jobs were fleeing the area, that the Rust Belt was falling apart. What I've seen firsthand though is totally different than that. Like I see amazing entrepreneurs in my post here in economic development and they are every bit as smart, maybe smarter than the folks in Silicon Valley. And they're solving big problems and they know how to do it. And like, they've got the resources to do it. And I was like, come on. And he was like, well, why is this such a ridiculous idea? He's like, come on, Turkey is a ridiculous idea. I was like, Mark, the, the, the GDP of Turkey is whatever it was. And I knew all the stats and he was like, well, what's the GDP of Ohio? And I was like one of those like, you know, Kennedy dead moments where you're like, like, I will never forget him asking that question where I was like, just stop me in my tracks, totally cold. And I was like, I have no idea. Like, what is the GDP of Ohio? Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm sure it's pretty small though. Mm-hmm. And I look it up and it turns out it's enormous. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like every stat that I looked, so I looked that up and then I was like, well, how big is the Midwest? And I mm-hmm. started looking up and like, every time I turned over a piece of data, it said the opposite of what I wanted. So yeah. here I am going to Turkey. That's like the 27th largest economy in the world. And all of a sudden I was like, well, the Midwest would be the fourth largest economy in the world. Like it's yeah. bigger than Brazil. It's bigger than Russia. It's bigger than India. It's bigger than any of the different things. Yeah. So I'm, look, I'm looking at this and this like leads me way down the rabbit hole uh, of this research project to try and figure this whole idea. Because uh, Mark was like, you know, you should leave Sequoia and you should start the, a Midwest investment firm. And I was at first like, you know, as dismissive as I was saying, suddenly this idea that was like totally ridiculous was like, not only was it, like not crazy. It was actually starting to feel like, you know, this could be, this could be the thing. Like, yeah. Cause it, it, what dawned on me was, okay, what if Mark's wrong? What if I did this? Okay. If, if I'm, if I did this and Mark's wrong, then I just come back to Silicon Valley and, mm-hmm. and get a job and be fine. Yeah, um, so, so I'm just, you, you did think that like, cause you're in this like dream job at Sequoia and now it's exploding and you're in the middle of it. And you know, it's all the sexy stuff that's, you know, on your plate in front of you. That's this, you know, amazing time in history. Mm -hmm. And you weren't apprehensive about leaving that. No, of course I was. I was, I was terrified. I was, I was scared to death. But it's, but like, you know, it dawned on me, like if we're wrong, like, okay, failure is kind of a badge of honor in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. But what if we're right? Yeah. Like if we're right, then yeah, I mean, I think there's like a, everything is going to be possible, right? Of course, you're apprehensive about it, but like, not enough to not take that jump, right? Like, this is and this is like a thing that maybe feels a little bit normal to you, but it's not. You know, it's not a normal thing to do. And this is kind of a big part of what I like to highlight in this podcast is you are really breaking a mold. 
you know, you are from what it sounds like, you know, you've, you've, you know, gone to Yale, you're now at, uh, at Sequoia, you know, you're on a trajectory that most people, whether it be society, your parents, your peers would say like, stay there, do that. Like that's, that's what it's supposed to look like. It looks really good. You're all the things that success looks like. And you're like, fuck it. Um, what about that? That could be really interesting, which is not a, a normal thing. And something that I want to try to like elevate that, like trust, trust yourself, you know, take chance, take risk, you know, and, and really, you know, go where you think the, the real opportunity is, which is, you know, what you did to start drive. Totally. No, I, I, I hear you. I think for me, I never thought about it quite like that. I mean, it just became this for me, it became it just became this obsession. Yeah, like I would I would literally, I would wake up at two o'clock in the morning, wondering. Like it became it's like I was literally like I, I got to be wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like I found something that is like so obvious. Yeah, that like you know yeah I mean the emerging economies are the place we should go invest venture capital. Like everyone agreed with that. Yeah, but what if the best emerging economy was America? Like yeah. Don and I was like, I cannot be the only person who's thought of this idea. Yeah, and I, I there has to be somebody doing it. And I was just like obsessed with finding the answer. Like, why am I wrong? Why? And I would so yeah. I started sharing it with other people, and it became this thing where they were like, Wait, are you serious about doing this? I'm like, mm-hmm. Ah, it's just a research project. Mm-hmm. But then I started saying it more and more and more, and it started to become one of these things where all of a sudden people were like, well, You're really serious about this? And yeah. I was like, Well, like I can't find anything that's wrong with this. Yeah. And like, what am I going to do? Like, I, so I'm in a position now where. So my mom had recently passed away and she died in March of that year. And so, um, this is 2012. So she dies in March of 2012. And kind of like, you know, you have, I have my daughter now mm-hmm. was six months mm-hmm. old at the time. And it kind of dawned on me. I was like, well, you know, I've got the opportunity here that I believe is the opportunity of a lifetime. And if I don't take it, like, what am I going to do? Like, I'll tell my kids like, so, okay, it's day, it's a coil. Like, what's the answer? Well, you know, I inherited, like my kids are going to grow up one day and I'm going to, I'm going to work my tail off. And so I'm, I'm not going to see them as much as I'd like. And one day they're going to be like, well, what do you do every day? What would I tell them? Well, I inherited the greatest brand in the history of venture capital and I didn't mess it up. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, that's a neat story. Or I could tell them, well, look, I had the opportunity of a lifetime and I went for it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wouldn't care what happened. Like, because not because I believed I would make it successful at, at any cost, just because I believed that 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 experiment was it was worth the risk of doing it. Yeah, because the downside was so low. Like yeah. the downside was, you know, I'd come back and get another job, and the upside was this could literally be the reshaping of the American economy. Like mm. it was, I, and I still believe that yeah. to this day. So it's like, you know, you start thinking about these these choices and these decisions. It's like, well, who do you really want to be when you grow up? Yeah. Like, do you want to be the person that like just did everything they were supposed to, or do you want to do you want to try like take a chance and do yeah. stuff? Yeah, and and you know um, that's that's like a great message. Yet, like to have the actual courage to do it is um, rare. You know, I think that that you know we can all probably look at deaths or tragedies or life experiences that do kind of give you this wake up call where you're like, shit, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And it might be having children, you know, and, and really starting to think about the messaging that you're sending. In your case, you know, it was a number of things, but um, most people don't actually have the courage then actually follow that. Now, I mean, 
I think, you know, again, this is, you know, part of the reason why this podcast exists is to show people that you can take those jumps, that it can um, be difficult and take courage, but it's really, really worth it on the other side. So, you know, talk a little bit about drivers now, I mean, in Columbus and, and across probably the world, I don't know the venture space like you do. So I don't know what your reputation is, you know, worldwide, but you're making a huge splash in this country at a minimum, people now know the thesis is, is right. I mean, you, were, you guys were right and you have done something that's massive and you're just getting started in a lot of ways. And I know it wasn't easy. Courageous, you know, yes, but then like not exactly like a straight line, all things considered. You know, talk a little bit about kind of what it's like to be a little bit on the other side of that courageous leap. And then, you know, where, what's the future look like? So when we, when we started Drive, we, we got our pitch together and you know, we put together this PowerPoint presentation. We put together these docs and we went out and we, I started cold calling investors. And I was like, hey, you know, do you want to invest in our new venture capital fund? It was like one of the first 10 phone calls I made was uh, a big investor, an institutional investor. And they said, yes, not only do we want to invest, we want to invest $60 million in your fund. And I was like, I remember calling Mark and being like, dude, this is going <laughs> to be a good so hot. Yeah. We are going to just take over the world. Yeah. And it, it turned out that like <laughs> between that yes and our next yes uh, was 238 meetings. Yeah. And I was like, shit. Oh, yeah. so like there were some really dark, there was, uh, you know, yeah. I'll never forget the day I moved to Ohio. It was, it was, um, it was the last week in March of, 2014 and here I are two sorry 2013 um so it's still winter out it's snowing out and I move here I, I got a, a a rental place and here I am I show up and the furniture doesn't show up my, my the movers didn't show up so I rented this place in German village gravity didn't exist yet so I, there was <laughs> nothing like this to rent yeah. so I end up uh renting this place in German village and no, nothing shows up so all I have is the, like the clothes on my back and I had a, a towel for some reason they'd left a towel behind in the house and I had nowhere else to go and so here I am my first night in Columbus my my wife and kid they weren't coming I was like I'm gonna go out and get the place set up before you guys move mm-hmm. so they're coming out and but I had this night and I'm sleeping there on on my back in my coat with underneath like this like little you know used towel from the prior uh, tenants that were in this place <laughs> I'm sitting there staring at the ceiling and it's like this really old house and it's making all these scary noises. I was like snowing outside. I was like, what have I done? This was a terrible idea. What am I thinking about? This is crazy. Um, and whether it was that or there were so many failed investor meetings, we had, you know, you know one of our more um, stories we've shared a lot is that we had, you know, we had basically had done all the fundraising finally. And then we had one of our, a different LP than the one I mentioned, um, they were a $50 million commitment and they just changed their mind at mm. the last second. And, yeah. you know, it was like, I was too late. Like we were yeah. already moving. And the result was, you know, so many steps backwards, so many mm-hmm. uh, punches, you know, to the gut as you're going along and building this. And, but what would end up happening is we'd work, 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 and just grind and grind and grind. And then something amazing would happen. Like mm. um, one of the first people we hired was a guy called Robert Hada. And, you know, we were like grinding and grinding and grinding and, and trying to find the right person to join the firm. Mm-hmm. And then this guy who, you know, frankly, I, Robert could work anywhere. Was, he said, 
yeah, I'll come work with you guys. I was like, what? Like, it was like such yeah. a win yeah. um, to get somebody like that to come join our team. Um, and there yeah. are all these little things along the way that, that kind of produce these results. But, and we haven't had any big successes yet. Like I know we've raised a bunch of money, but it's, you know, we've got a bunch of companies and like things are going great. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. You know, we're still really just in the infancy of what I would consider to be our vision for for what we're building mm-hmm. here. And until I would consider it a success. Yeah, I mean, I think it. that's um, humble of you to say, and I know you believe that. I know, I know you're not just saying that um, to sound humble or to be humble, but uh, your vision is such that, you know, you're going to define success a different way. From the outside looking in, you know, going from the people saying no, the 238 meetings and the $50 million checks pulling out, like all of those you know, what you call bumps along the road, you know, that's real shit when you're in it. And, you know, to get to a billion dollars in management and to have some companies that are having a lot of success, you know, I think I would consider it a success, a big success, you know, really. Um, I think it's been phenomenal for the city of Columbus. And, And I know what you mean, like the potential is still unrealized, you know, to see some of these companies that are, um, already adding, you know, hundreds of jobs and soon to be thousands of jobs. That that's that wouldn't exist. That wasn't happening unless you guys take this courageous leap and do something that really nobody was doing. And you know, so I, I say success, but I know there's a much bigger vision and future. And and maybe just you know, in our last you know few minutes, talk a little bit about that. Like, where do you see? the future of venture in the Midwest and drive in particular. Well, I, I appreciate all the, the kind words. The, um, you know, the, one of the things we subscribe to at drive is no asterisks. Like I, I don't want to be the most successful venture fund in Ohio, Columbus, mm-hmm. the Midwest, America, whatever. Like I, I, our vision is we set out to build the most successful investment firm, full stop. Mm-hmm. That's it. I don't want to qualify it with any locations or anything like that. And until we have been able to achieve what I believe to be a superior return for our investors over a several decade period of time, I don't think we can call ourselves a success. Now, the, what are the ingredients to get there? Well, we're gonna, we've invested two funds so far, um, which totals about uh, $550 million, And we've just raised this new uh, $650 million that we're going to invest into to new fresh opportunities. And the investments and is a big chunk of the work, but like the biggest chunk of the work comes with the work that we do with our companies after that we've invested in them. And you know, we have so many companies now that you know, like the ones you mentioned, where they are they're so close to being what I would consider to be like true successes in their industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned a bunch of them, and um, you know, but the reality is they're going through their experiences, they're going yeah, through their sure, bumps, sure. and the people who are working there are living those real life. Yeah bumps every single day. Mm-hmm. And the reason they're going to be successful is for as much success as they've had, I know they're not going to stop. Yeah. And so it's so important to me to keep that mentality yeah. um, at our companies and also at Drive. Because when you do that for 15, 20 years and you pick your head up and then you start to measure where you went over that period of time, you know, every single day doesn't feel like it's a big piece. But when you look at it over a longer period of time, it starts to look like a pretty remarkable 
achievement along the way. Yeah. But you won't get there if you start before you start looking up before you've actually you know put in the work and done the grinding and done all the time and yeah. lived through all all those challenges. So to me, like the the vision for Drive is to be the most successful investment firm. Mm-hmm. And until we get there, we're, we're we are going to keep that hunger mentality. Well, you know, you you've clearly demonstrated this kind of belief, you know, going back to childhood and and playing squash that, you know, you're going to um, not stop until you're number one, or certainly, um, like you said, if it's, if it's two or three and you do it with integrity, that's okay too. Um, but, but, you know, there's no question in my mind that, you know, there's uh, not only an incredibly bright future and you're, you're likely to get, you know, everything that you want out of this, but there's been a, a very successful, uh, now too, that um, in most people, most people's eyes is is considered to be success, and you know I just uh, applaud you for the the courage and the um, conviction and and taking the risk and what it's doing for this region and certainly the city. So I thank you, and I know a lot of other people feel the same way. And uh, just kind of you know in closing, I'm I'm kind of curious to hear what would you tell other people younger. You know, the entrepreneurs that you work with, I know that you are hands-on and you are helping them navigate those bumps. What about people that are, you know, kind of younger, you know, maybe, you know, high school, college, or just getting started in the business world, or maybe even later in life that still believe they've got some kind of jump in them? What would be the message that you share with those people? I tell people all the time, if you've got a passion that you're excited by, you should just pursue it to the nth degree. Like mm-hmm. if that means quitting your job, dropping out of college, starting a company, mm-hmm. you should give yourself the freedom and the opportunity to run that passion down to its fullest potential. And I, I think you should do it because I have yet to find a single person who did that in any realm, whether it's venture capital or startups or music or art or anything else who didn't find that that led them down a path of a fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, what you find is those are the people that are the most successful in life. Yeah. And they end up building things that nobody else would have been able to build. So my advice is always just follow your passions and run them down to your, your best, the best of your ability. That's great. Awesome. Chris, thank you. Thank you for sharing everything. And My um, pleasure. I know we want to uh, mention Differential, your podcast. Yeah. And anything else that um, you want to share, plug, where people can find you? you guys, any, I'm available anywhere uh, on the internet. So I'm chris at drivecapital.com or uh, on, on Twitter at Chris Olson CMH um, or just pick up the phone and call me. Awesome. Great. Right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Brent. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.